Emmons K. Talk YA now presents Deathless Divide Part 2 from the Dread Nation Duology by Justina Ireland. Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished a duology by Justina Ireland. Um, the first book was called Dread Nation, and we just finished the second book in the series, which is called Deathless Divide. Yeah, and I saw your message that said, or you sent me your notes, which I always ask for because you do such a better <laughs> job while you're reading, but you just shorthand had it DD2, and for some reason, I'm, I'm so tired. My <laughs> sister just got married yesterday, which is awesome, so excited for her, but I'm like, my brain is slow, and so I was like, what is she talking about? And I, <laughs> I like was reading part of it, and I was like, this is just like that book I read, and then I like connected it. So anyways, oh my God. That, it, that gives you a sign. <laughs> well, as soon as I sent it to you, I was like, I probably should have actually typed out a name for this notes section that I wrote instead of just like using an awkward abbreviation but I'm glad you eventually got it. Normally I would have gotten it right away slash I also think in shorthand a lot but it was just funny I was like and your first note I think maybe it had to do with your research or something instead of or I don't know but I was like this is so interesting I was just reading about this and then I was like oh Anyways, yes, we have wrapped up Deathless Divide, so that is great. DD2, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved this second half because I really enjoyed how it all took place in the Old West. Uh, so it, the book picks up a year and five months after the events of the first half of the book, and we are now in California. And I was reading a little bit about Uh, Justina Ireland's notes at the back of the book and she said that when she set out to write this book she really wanted to write more about black people in the old west and like put them back in history because so often in westerns and like the idea of the frontier town you get like cowboys and pioneer women and they're always these white heroes and Mm -hmm. she was like I felt like I needed to, you know, put black people in the front and center of this situation and kind of tell their stories. And I really liked that concept. And I I liked seeing this world of the wild, wild west um, from a different perspective. Yeah, no, I think that part was good. I like really struggled with the time jump aspect of it, though. And I think I just was so into the first half. And I don't know, but like the second half, because so much time had passed and I had all these questions about like what had happened in the middle and especially because it was like partway through a mm. book not just like I think if it had been a separate book and did a time jump it would have bothered me less but it like took me a while to get back into it mm. yeah I, th- I think I would have appreciated another book in this series like I almost wish it was a, a trilogy and that you're right we had mm. that time jump between books instead of like in the middle of a book and I th- just because I, I agree with you, like I wanted to see more of Jane being a bounty hunter and like her new role in California. And like, I get why we had to jump because at the end of the last half, Jane had lost her arm and like she needed time to recuperate. And, you know, I, I respect the author's choice to not show us all that. But 
I, I enjoyed this series so much, I just wanted more of it. So I could, I could have seen it being yeah. maybe a better trilogy than a duology. Well, and I think uh, my biggest complaint about series I really enjoy is always that I want more. Mm-hmm. And I also just feel like because we start, I mean, it was great world building and like expanding the world a lot again in the second half. And there were like, we saw glimpses of things. Like I also wanted to see Catherine back in New Orleans a little bit oh, or like yeah. on the ship more or. Or more information about the Chinese people that they encountered in yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. Or even, like, hearing her mother's backstory further, mm-hmm. more about... Red- I mean, there were just... There was so much that, like, interested me. Or, like, where did Callie end up? But, um, oh, yeah. again, just, like, wanted more. And then when I did get back into it, because it just took me a little bit of time... Like, I just feel like I devoured the first half, and then I was, like, a little bit... It slowed down a little bit to give us all that information, and while I liked all that information, then when I got into it again, it felt like it was over really fast. Yeah. So... I mean, this was a long book, but it, again, it didn't feel long to me, and I just wanted, mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is such an interesting world, and, like, the characters and different perspectives, I think, are really great, so I, I almost wish, to your point, it had been, like, three books and maybe spread out a little bit more, or even if there was something to follow up now, even, because I'm, like, excited for, for what could happen next for some of these characters, but I'm totally jumping ahead, so we, we can go back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it opens with... Catherine. She's traveling with uh, Sue and Lily and a man named Carolina and uh, she's on a ship and she is she's headed towards California and she still thinks that Jane is dead. Understandably. Yes, because she left her in Nicodemus and she, she saw kind her, of get saw bit. her being bitten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, so she assumed that Jane has either turned or has died and a year and five months is such a long time to believe someone is dead. Like, I felt really bad when I f- found out that Catherine thought that Jane was dead that entire time, because that's... I think that's what I struggled with the most, actually. Like, yeah. I wanted to maybe see right afterwards, like, even if Jane immediately wanted to go after her, but couldn't because of her arm, and then, like, enough time had passed. I don't know, mm-hmm. I sort of felt, like, a little bit frustrated that Jane didn't try to reach out to Catherine and Sue after all she did to help them get out. And then also the way things left off in the first half, like they were rescued by that pony or whatever, but they were headed to the Fort Hood and we, I, I thought we would see more of that and like. Me too. How that played out. And we never. At Fort Riley. Yeah, or Fort yeah. Riley. Yeah. What did I say? Fort Hood. That's like a real thing. Okay, never mind. But, um, <laughs> and we never saw Jackson's wife. Right! And the baby! I really thought we would see Rosamund. I was shocked that we didn't. Me too. I, like, have even, like, weird things that obviously weren't going to be it. Like, when um, Jane was helping that little boy, and I realized later he was, like, eight years old and only a year had passed. But I was like, maybe that's Jackson's kid or something. (laughs) But, like, even though nothing about his backstory, I just, like, was waiting for Jackson's kid to show up somehow. So. Yeah, and, and Jane, like like you said, she really doesn't go after Catherine. She has been with Callie, with whom she has a romantic relationship now, and she was making a living as a bounty hunter. But her end goal really was to find Gideon. And even that, I would have liked to see their relationship develop a little bit more because it sounded like, I mean, they were the only two left, but then yeah. they like started a friendship and then it turned into something more. And it, it sounds like it could have been like a really sweet story amidst all this like terrible stuff. And I almost wish we had seen it play out a little bit more. Or at least see some of the good moments. Because we only I mean. get yeah. the mm-hmm. moments where Jane, you know, has really 
turned into what she has to be in order to survive and she is this like really ruthless killer right now like she is hunting down criminals and torturing them and you know she really doesn't have enough or any room left in her heart for love and I think that's partly why Callie leaves you know she's so hell-bound on revenge and eventually Callie is like I can't keep doing this with you and I was surprised I wasn't surprised that Callie left her, but I was surprised that Callie left her and took all of her money. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised <laughs> about like, that, too. <laughs> Yikes, that's, that's a lot. Like, half um, the money would be fair, but all the money seems a little... <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is... It is... It's interesting seeing Jane in this half of the book because she is so different from the Jane we knew in the first book and even in the first half of the second book. And I think it's totally fair that she's changed as much as she has because she's been through so much and like we see her now that um you know before people underestimated her because of her skin and her gender but now um she has a disability as well and so you know that Mm -hmm. kind of builds on top of how she's perceived and how she feels like she has to prove herself and she's just so lost in this desire for revenge against Gideon that she really doesn't have room for anything else Well, and we see this happens a little bit further along where she starts, as she discovers more about what her, like, immunity means, even Mm -hmm. though she doesn't fully understand it, but, like, the um, shamblers act differently if she's around because they, like, get confused or whatever. So she sort of has this moment where she's figuring that out and then thinks about how Jackson said he was surprised by the shamblers because they were, like, hiding in the house and like not behaving like normal shamblers and that's like how they sort of snuck up on him and so you see her kind of dealing with the guilt that it was like kind of her fault and it's not really her fault but right her she had a role sort of in how that all played out for him yeah and he basically told her he was like why do you think you keep seeing my ghost like of course this is why you keep seeing my ghost because she like harbors unresolved guilt towards his death yeah, and I think that that, like, that storyline, I like that we kept seeing his ghost, but even Lily, like, we reference her a lot, but we don't really interact with her much the second half of the book. Not at all. She's sort of kind of doing her own thing on the, like, it's not like we've left her somewhere, but between not finding out Jackson's wife and baby and, like, Lily sort of being, I feel like she could have been a more interesting character mm-hmm. to, like, see her dealing with the grief of losing her brother and some of this other stuff that they've been through and she's still so young and resilient and all this stuff. So I do feel, again, maybe it wouldn't have worked. This book is already quite long. So adding in another like hundred pages to flesh out a character maybe wouldn't have worked in this format, but I would love to have seen her more. I agree. And I also would have loved to see, um, well, I don't know, maybe you feel differently. Were you upset that we didn't get a clear answer of why the dead rose in the first place like why how why did the zombie apocalypse happen like because we get um a little brief hint that this is something that's happened all over the world um because mm-hmm. we learned that asia was overrun by the dead as well so it's not something that's just unique to the united states it was kind of like a worldwide phenomenon but we don't have a reason for it and i was curious if that bothered you or not I think the whole kind of unresolved science part in general bothered me. And to be fair, Gideon wasn't trying to figure out the initial cause. He was trying to find a cure. Mm -hmm. But it actually kind of felt like when we ran into him again and like some of Jane's observation, like I sort of felt like that was also a little bit rushed almost because they sort of were on the track to like his methods. I still don't agree with, but he between Jane's observations and some of what he was doing, 
he did he was kind of getting some of it right or there might have been something there he had a few success stories yeah so part of me was a little bit disappointed that we didn't like get a final answer about some of that stuff or like even when someone was like investigating his journal later that there wasn't like a oh he like forgot to carry the one and actually you know we add this to the water and the zombies will go i don't i mean that would have also been like way too easy but (laughs) yeah i'm just wondering if like could you ever have an explanation for, like, why something like this would happen? Like, is that too difficult to explain and you just kind of have to take it at face value? I mean, I would think if you if you can, tr- if you can understand how it works now, then you could, I would think, have a better understanding of how it could have started or how it spread. You, I mean, I guess they kind of know how yeah. it spreads. But we, we know that someone becomes a shambler if they're attacked by a sh- or bitten by a shambler, but there also is this, like, if you just die and no one puts a nail in your head, you could also come back to life, right? Right. So, like, where was patient zero? Yeah. I don't know. I kind of wish we had seen that. That would be cool. Although that would have felt outside the scope of the story. Like, it's interesting from a world perspective, but yeah. I don't feel like Jane would have cared about that. Or Catherine. I agree. That's a good point. Um, and I do like that our two, like, main characters, Catherine and Jane, like, they do spend some time apart, but then they also reunite. Yep. And, ooh, that was a tough reunion. Yeah. They were, like, Jane was so indifferent to her. It was so hard to watch. Oh, my goodness. And, again, I'm jumping ahead. So they do... Jane is so focused on going after Gideon that she keeps making the choice to, like, pursue him and, like, screw everything else and everybody else. And Mm -hmm. Catherine is so relieved that she's alive and wants to, like, protect her from herself in some ways and just, like, um, has the sense of loyalty. So she keeps going along with her, even though she doesn't always mm-hmm. agree with Jane's plans. Redfern comes back. Ugh. Yeah. And we can talk about we can talk about that more in a minute, but I just wanted to... The part where Catherine gets infected, or Gideon stabs her, or, you know, injects her with the antidote, quote-unquote, and then, like is starting to run away and Jane makes the choice between do I save Catherine from this burning building while she's like suffering on the ground and can't stand or do I go after Gideon and she made the choice to go after Gideon at least initially I was like whoa and poor Catherine she was like and then Jane left me to die I was like no Catherine you poor thing like Jane what are you doing oh man Mm. yeah yeah that was right we can come back to that in a minute, but I, I was expecting when it came down to it for her to, like, help Catherine, and so I was like, whoa! <laughs> Me too, and wasn't it, was it Redfern who says, because we have, like, two perspectives, I think it was Gideon who, or maybe Catherine said she thinks we become who we need to become to survive, and then I think it was either Gideon or Redfern who says, at the end of the day, we become the thing we fear the most, and I think that was, like, so true with Jane because she just Mm -hmm. even at the beginning she was a little hesitant to make friends because she was so used to having people push her away and not care about her and so having a friend like Catherine who like sticks by her through thick and thin and like won't give up on her part of her part of Jane is just like she's so hardened and so conditioned to believe that she's not worth that effort that she keeps pushing people away and like choosing revenge over them and then I liked how at the very end we did have mm-hmm. that moment where Jane thanks Catherine and she says, thank you for not giving up on me. Like, I did really appreciate that. Yeah. But I, I liked this idea of, like, 
you become the worst part of yourself in a situation like this because I think that can be very true like if you're struggling to survive and you're struggling to like not just lay down and give up like I think you have to become a pretty hard person well and I also I love when there's kind of a thin line between like the villain and the hero Mm -hmm. and you sort of see that with Gideon and Jane in the sense that Gideon is pursuing his cure thing or vaccine like so single-mindedly forget everything else and while Jane isn't in alignment with his goal she's basically doing the same thing to stop him Mm -hmm. screw everything regardless of anybody else and it it is kind of interesting to see you know what does make them different and it's sort of this thin line and Catherine it plays a big role in that I think yeah and same with Redfern like the thin line between like a good character and an evil character like because at first Redfern asks Jane to help him track down and kill Gideon and she's like okay yeah this is this is right up my alley like this is what I've been trying to do and Catherine is the one who's like very suspicious and then we learned that Redford was working for Gideon and essentially turns Jane and Catherine over to Gideon but then also gives them the key to escape so it's just like, Redfern is such an interesting character because it's like, he actually did want to kill Gideon. He wanted to track down Gideon, but he knew that he would have a better chance of getting access to him if he approached him as a friend rather than an enemy. So he like totally used Jane and Catherine to gain access to him, but, you know, also didn't intend to hurt them. Yeah. And part of me is like, Redfern, that was a bad plan, especially once Catherine was coming along. You should have <laughs> just like let them in on it a little bit because... Then Jane could have, like, played along to get captured, maybe, and Catherine could have hidden and then come and helped, or something. I don't know. It seemed a little bit, like, uh, not thought out well if your ultimate goal was to help them. I don't think his ultimate goal was to help them. I think his ultimate goal was to kill Gideon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he just, like, knew that Jane was the key to gaining Gideon's trust. So he just kind of, like, used her (laughs) to get to him. And then at the end, oh my gosh, I was freaking out at the end of this book because we had like 20 pages left and we hadn't even made it to Haven yet. And I was so sure we were going to like see Jane's mom and have this big reunion at Haven. And I, tell me how you feel about the end of the book. Because we do get a reunion in Haven with Jane's mother But then Jane, the more she stays there, she kind of realizes that she doesn't belong and Haven is more of a place for people who want to put down roots and settle down and her mom's not very welcoming. Like, it's very performative where she's like fawning over Jane in public, but in private she doesn't really have much time for her or, you know, she doesn't have a desire to like learn about what Jane's been through. And she has like a new family, essentially. I mean, she's remarried with two boys who she's like, able to love openly and spoil and there is a lot of like maybe not quite animosity but kind of animosity between Jane and her mom yeah so she makes the decision to leave Haven Mm -hmm. and continue alone in the world and then I love how Catherine and Redfern go with her because all three of them are immune now apparently to zombies and she goes out and leaves Haven with her friends and decides to continue on her adventures Yeah, well, it is interesting because Jane is very single-minded and hard through the second half of the book, but she is still, like, making 
choices for the greater good. Like, yes, she's, like, torturing mm-hmm. people, but she is only going after, quote-unquote, bad people, especially people who seem to have, like, taken advantage of someone who, like, isn't protected by law or can't defend themselves. So a lot of, like, mm-hmm. black victims or, like, poor victims or chi- children. and Like, it seems like she's... She does have a sense of justice. She's not just, like, terrorizing people to terrorize them. And so part of me is glad that she's, like, back and doing that kind of work and, like, would love to see what their adventures lead. And I like that her and her mom, it wasn't, like, the big happy reunion. Again, I, like, kind of like when things are unhappy. But I wanted to flush it out more. (laughs) Like, I was actually, I thought that was, like, a really interesting, maybe very realistic after how much time they spent apart and stuff. But I just wanted to, like see them talk about it more or like understand her mom's perspective a little bit more or see her mom bond with someone else I don't like I just wanted more from it it was a little bit quick I guess to your point with like 20 pages left and we hadn't gotten to Haven yet it sort of felt like I didn't even get a good sense for Haven except that it wasn't (laughs) where we were gonna end up yeah I agree but I did feel satisfied with the end with Jane leaving and continue on her adventure because like I think you brought this up at the beginning like we know we're not going to get a happy ending with like you know all the zombies are put down and justice for all yeah yeah exactly um and so I was curious to see how it would end and I I did enjoy that I was surprised by a lot of stuff at the ending like Mm -hmm. normally I feel like I can predict what's going to happen a lot of times in the books we read, but I would never have predicted that Gideon walks free. And, like, I know we, like, his lab burned down, but the fact that Jane gave up on her quest for revenge for him... I thought Catherine shot him. What? Did she? Okay, so didn't she, or did she shoot someone else over Jane's shoulder, like, after Jane finally did go back and drag her out of there? Oh, I thought he, I thought Gideon just, like, ran off. I mean, he did run off, and she, like, chose to go after him, and then she went back for Catherine, like, dragged Catherine out of the building, and then I thought it was Gideon who showed up, but someone, um, wait, let's look, let's find it again. Oh my gosh, that would totally change everything. Like, right before she finally passes out, didn't she, she shot someone over Jane's shoulder, was it somebody else? I thought it was 10 Irish Tom, or whatever. I'm so curious because I wanted Jane to give up on her quest for revenge and like move on with her life and like let lay it to rest. Yeah, because Gideon has a gun on Jane and she's like, I guess you're going to kill me now. And he says, you know, I have no choice. Neither of us did. Goodbye, Jane McKean. Oh my God, why do I not remember any of this? And then a shot rings out loud and incredibly close and I have a moment of weightlessness. But then Gideon's eyes widen and he drops his revolver as a and basically Catherine's like she shot him from the ground over Jane's shoulder and Jane's like what you killed him and Jane or Catherine says I'm the best at Miss Preston's or whatever oh my god what oh is my it? god Katie <laughs> two of my pages were stuck together <laughs> oh my god no wonder I didn't read this <laughs> What are the odds that two, the only two pages that are stuck together would be, like, the most important part of the book? Oh, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're right. Catherine kills Gideon. Um, okay, so I'm surprised. <laughs> no, it's all good. 
But it is interesting because Jane isn't the one who kills Gideon, but she's like kind of freed from her quest. And Catherine sort of crosses a line that she, I mean, that's like a huge, again, sac- sacrifice kind of for Catherine. But she saved her friend, which I feel like, of course, she was going to do. So, yeah. And I think it's surprising that like the whole time you thought Jane was going to be the one to take revenge yeah. on Gideon and kill him. And in the, in the end, it was Catherine. But I do, I love that, like, kind of inside joke coming back around, too, about how she's, like, the best shot at at their school. (laughs) Yep. And she can do it while wearing a corset. Yep. But, yeah, but even that felt a little, like, why did Gideon even come back to shoot? Oh, I guess he had to because she would have kept hunting him is the thought. Yeah. I think so. And he did kind of need to die because he was sort of a really bad guy. I mean, he really was, like, destroying huge groups of people and his single-minded mission that... Again, I, like, respect the idea of wanting to find a cure, and if he just, if his methods were different, that would be great. But he took a lot of unnecessary risks and didn't give people a lot of choices, and devastation seemed to follow in his wake, basically. But you know what I think is interesting is how similar Gideon and Jane are at the heart of themselves. Like, even though they totally disagree with each other's methods, they Mm -hmm. both have the similarity that, you know, they're so driven to accomplish their goals and they're so determined and stubborn that they almost have this, like, laser focus where they can't see anything else in the periphery of their vision and they have this, like, tunnel vision where they can't where they can't consider any other possibility and it, bo- it leads them both to making, you know, har- bad decisions at some point. Totally. And that's what I kind of meant with the thin line thing, right? Like, yeah. they are actually really, really similar with slightly different focuses and it is interesting to see how that plays out because Catherine is able to sort of help Jane redeem herself otherwise she would Mm -hmm. have ended up just as bad as Gideon even though they were on opposite sides absolutely because even now I mean she's going back to sort of righting wrongs and seeking justice in the world I think and possibly bounty hunting Mm -hmm. specifically but you get the sense that she's not going to just go torturing and murdering people because she like like, hopefully she's still seeking justice, but she's not going to, like, torture take people. it as far as she was before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think she wants to, like, liberate the survivalist towns. Um, yep. That's, like, her one goal. She wants to keep putting down zombies. She wants purpose. She wants freedom and purpose. And she felt like she couldn't have that in Haven. So I really liked the end when she and Redfern and Catherine left. And it was kind of like you knew they were going to continue on their journey and do the best they could to fight these villains. Well, kind of like what you were talking about at the very beginning when you think about old westerns. Like, I sort of feel like that's kind of how they end, too. Like, this town is safe, and now, like, our hero is going to ride out and, like, find the next... You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it sort of fits into that same sort of theme of, like, these western old western stories. And even, like, the stories that are being told in the second half at the beginning of each chapter... Oh, yeah, that was great world building. I mean, the other stuff was nice with, like, Shakespeare and the Bible and stuff, but this one, like, really, I agree, like, just built out the world and, like, added so much Mm -hmm. to the story. And I think in part, too, because we had that time jump, so it kind of helped fill in contextually, at least, what happened. Mm -hmm. Because it turned Jane into a legend, which was cool. You know, she had this reputation, the devil's bride, which was... I love that. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, that just fits so well into an old Western story, um, where there's this, like, legendary bounty hunter, and, you know, if you see her, it's already too late, or, you know, just, like, the stories that spread. Yeah. 
Well, and the missing arm adding into all of that, mm-hmm. too. And and even in the stories, though, you were, that's where we were seeing some of this, like, yeah, she was, like, torturing people, but they, like, burned down and killed everyone in a house yeah. that was, like, protecting people, or they were, like, stealing children, or I forget what the different stories were now, but, like, I mean, they were people who deserved it. They were criminals, yeah. yeah. Not just, like, they stole a loaf of bread to feed their family criminals, like, they were bad, right. bad people. <laughs> I just, I, I really liked this series a lot. I wish that we had a little bit more. Like, I would love to read another book set in this world. I think it was fascinating and unique and surprising. And I feel like I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I highly recommend it. Agreed. And even to your point, what we were seeing about the bigger world, like, it was cool because we saw, like, a city out east that got, ultimately destroyed but we saw kind of that perspective we saw uh where were they in the middle kentucky or kansas or oh yeah Uh, with the spanish-speaking family maria and tomas the little boy and we saw like the i mean there were just so many parts that we got a glimpse of but it would have been fun to see even more and then we found out the shambler thing was worldwide so even you could like jump over to like europe or china or Mm -hmm. brazil or somewhere and like see how different countries Like, it it is such a cool blend of, like, the history and the supernatural. I just, yeah, I really loved her world building. And I really love the characters. And I would, like, Mm -hmm. pick up and see where they all ended up in six months or five years or wherever. Because now that they've, like, finished this chapter and they go out, I feel like that would, the time jump would work again. But Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really liked the um, blend of, like, history and fantasy Mm -hmm. i like how in san francisco like or in california they call it the golden state but instead of like the golden state bridge it's a golden wall Mm -hmm. that they build to like keep out the zombies like little things like that i just found absolutely fascinating yeah i mean it what there were so many cool details that again i would i would like read a lot more in this world absolutely what should we do a rating now okay out of how many Shamblers? shamblers? <laughs> Out, of Out of ten. So is our shamblers good in this case? I guess so. The more shamblers, the better. How many bounty hunters? How many ponies? Corsets. <laughs> How many corsets? How tight would you tie your corset on a scale? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, let's just do out of ten shamblers, where ten shamblers is better than one shambler. I would give it nine. I was going to say eight, just because the second half lost me a little bit. Yeah, you had some concerns, um, yeah. But, yeah, love the world, love the writing. Totally want to read more of her stuff, but I'm also just sad to leave this behind. Because her other stuff is very different from the little bit I've read. Which isn't bad, I'm sure it's also mm. well written, but this is just a fun, unique world. And I'm not a zombie person. I know you've said you've enjoyed other zombie stories, but... Um, <laughs> I do. For someone who's not a big zombie fan, I also really enjoyed it. I have a question for you, and I didn't really think of this yet. Um, I haven't thought of a fan name for this series. Oh, man. Um... <sighs> the first thing that I thought of was survivalists, but I don't think we want to be survivalists. Those are like the bad guys. I know. What was the other group called? Um, not evangelical. What was it? Egalitarians? Yeah. I mean, I'd rather be an egalitarian than a survivalist, but... Yeah, me too. We could be bounty hunters. We could be... Should we just be shamblers? <laughs> I mean, 
I just kind of love that word too. I feel like it's, it's great. Such a like I can just hearing the word shambler and like knowing that's describing zombies. I like a hundred percent have this image in my head already of what that means and how they move and like everything about. Mm-hmm. And there's so many other like words for zombies that have been done already. I like that she like managed to pick a new word to describe them, and it's a it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, should we be shamblers? Is that boring? I'll be a shambler. Okay. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um, did you do any research this week? So I did a little bit, but I basically just pulled up this article, but I haven't really read it because, again, I just was sort of distracted with my sister's wedding. But I have a list of five famous bounty hunters. Do you want to learn about Ooh. them with me? <laughs> yes, please. Okay. <laughs> so... The first is, well, because again, I loved the little vignettes or whatever about um, sort of the legend of bounty hunters in this world. And again, going back to like this Wild West and different perspectives, I don't know. Um, So the first one I have is John of the Priests. Have you heard of him? No. So. Wait, is he the one who hunted priests? um, We'll find out because I haven't really read ahead enough. Yes, he was the priest hunter. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I've heard of this. So the 1709 Penal Act demanded that all Catholic priests take the oath of abjuration and recognize the Protestant Queen as supreme head of the Church of England and Ireland. And if you refused, you were sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. And this guy, John Maloney, was arrested as a horse thief in Castlebar, Ireland in the early 1700s and was offered the choice. He could either hang or become a priest hunter. So, you know, he had a lot of options. <laughs> Um, so he chose to hunt down priests. So he was a talented rogue who excelled at clergy hunting, and he was sometimes paid as much as 100 pounds for the capture of an archbishop or bishop. And the way, I think, have we talked about this in a different podcast? I think we did. Yeah, now that... I remember hearing about the priest hunter in Ireland. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is what reminded me, too. His favorite method of ensnaring priests was to feign a deathbed confession. (laughs) Then pull out a concealed weapon, and that is his way of capturing priests. Wow. Um, But he was fatally stabbed in the act of killing the last remaining Catholic priest in his parish. And his body was thrown into a lake by local Catholics. um, (laughs) And eventually it was retrieved and buried in unconsecrated ground nearby. And supposedly... So there's a tree near the spot, and local legend says it has grown but never blossomed since he was buried there. Whoa. That's kind of crazy. I don't remember talking about bounty hunters, though, so hopefully we haven't heard all of these stories, but we'll find out as we read. I think we did when we read um, Warcross, because wasn't Emika the main character? Wasn't she a bounty hunter? Man, we've done too many series now. I cannot keep keep it straight. And again, this is where my terrible memory works out well for me, but not for our listeners, because I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. (laughs) And then I'm like, wait, we have (laughs) talked about this before. I'm sure we haven't talked about all the ones on this list, though. Okay, well, let's see if we've talked about Thomas Tate Tobin. So in 1863, three Mexican national cousins, the Espinosas, went on a killing spree, murdering more than 30 English Americans in the San Luis Valley, Colorado, in retaliation for relatives that were killed during the Mexican-American War. Wow. Okay, so we've got these three cousins out there killing a bunch of people. So the authorities failed to capture the men, and they announced that they were wanted dead or alive. So they called in Tom Tobin, who is an adventurer, tracker, trapper, mountain man, guide, and U.S. Army scout. So he has quite the the um, resume. Yeah. 
Um, he was given 15 men to assist him, but instead went out by himself. And <laughs> when he returned, he was asked how his trip went, and he said, supposedly, so-so. Before he threw down a sack which contained the severed heads of all three men. Oh my god. I mean, did he not think it would be easier with, like, a, a little bit of help? Like, maybe two of the 15 men he was given? I mean, you would think, but maybe he thought they'd get in his way or, like, announce that he was coming. Wow. He just couldn't be bothered. He didn't need want any Catherines holding him back, you know? Not a collaborator. Okay. <laughs> Next we have Patrick Floyd, Pat Garrett. In November 1880, the sheriff of Lincoln County, New Mexico, resigned, and the county appointed Pat Garrett a man well-known for his skills with a gun as his replacement. A former saloon owner, Garrett, was charged with tracking down an old acquaintance from his barkeeping days. 21-year-old Henry McCarty had escaped from prison and was said to have murdered as many men as years he'd lived. So I guess 21. What? (laughs) Shit. Okay, that's a lot. It sounds... I mean, 21 is a lot of men, but it sounds almost like he's been killing men since he was a young child or something, just the way it's phrased. Like a two-year-old coming at you with a machete. He's already killed two. When he turns three, he'll have killed another. Yeah. Um, But (laughs) that is just a funny way to say it. I love it when they, like, again, this is kind of that, like, legend storytelling style of, like, how they phrase things to just, but then sometimes when you think about it, you're like, oh, that's not actually quite how it sounds, even if it is technically true. Anyways, McCarty was better known then um, as Billy the Kid. So, mm. so New Mexico Governor <laughs> Lou Wallace offered a $500 reward for the kids' capture. After a bloody game of cat and mouse in which members of the kids' gang were gradually killed and arrested by Garrett, the lawman finally did for the outlaw, ambushing him in the dark and killing him with a single blast from his sharps rifle. Garrett never received the reward as it was conditional of Billy being captured, not killed. So he was not supposed to be dead or alive, I guess. He was supposed to be caught alive. Um, And I guess there's still speculation to this day that Billy the Kid did not die that night and Garrett staged the whole thing so that his buddy could disappear for good. Interesting. Have you seen the movie The Hunter? I have not. I have not either, but apparently this guy is the basis for The Hunter, which is a Steve McQueen's final film from 1980. But oh. um, Ralph Papa Thorson is a bounty hunter who is said to have apprehended more than 12,000 fugitives. What? Dang, that is a lot. Dead Isn't or alive? It? Or like a combination? Sometimes he would use the eccentric method of utilizing astrological charts to locate criminals. Oh, that's new. (laughs) He also favored non-lethal force in the form of uh, the self-designed Prowler Fowler, which fired (laughs) buckshot-filled beanbags at assailants. What? (laughs) He was killed by a car bomb in 1994, which someone assumes is placed by, or is presumed to be placed by one of his 12,000 enemies. (laughs) Just, I want to see that movie now. I'm curious. Me too. And this is the last one I have. So, um, Domino Harvey was born in 1969 to actor Lawrence Harvey and fashion model Pauline Stone. Always mm. a tomboy, Domino had an interest in martial arts and action figures, which was not shared by the other girls who went to her upper-class English boarding school. So, she was ultimately expelled from four of these schools, and so she dropped out of education, and 
decided to pursue a career in modeling and eventually found herself in the U.S. And in 1993, after unsuccessfully applying to the L.A. Fire Department, she enrolled in a course to become a bail recovery agent or bounty hunter. And she primarily targeted drug dealers and thieves, but also tracked murderers down during her time as a bounty hunter. Good for her. And she earned as much as $40,000 per year doing this. Oh my gosh. But unfortunately, she became addicted to drugs and died of an overdose in 2005. Oh, no. I love that name, Domino. That's a great name. I bet, I bet it was pretty rare back then for there to be women bounty hunters. I would not be surprised if it's still rare. Like, definitely yeah. not. There are none. But I could see that being still, like, a male-dominated industry. Industry? Is it an industry? <laughs> what defines an industry? Sure, it's an industry. <laughs> it requires a unique set of skills, for sure. <laughs> I just saw there's some, like, commercial for a show on Netflix coming out in a couple weeks that was described as, like, Veronica Mars meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. Or maybe it was something else, but I think it's about these two teenage bounty hunters, and I'm kind of curious about it. Oh, I love that. I would watch that for sure. Um, so anyways, thanks for learning along with me since I didn't actually <laughs> read anything ahead of time. But I did love this idea of the bounty hunters and just sort of... In general, I mean, I think it's why I like Pirate Princess, too. It's sort of this, like, slightly rogue, but, like, kind mm-hmm. of justice-oriented, but the rules don't quite, you know, like, you're outside the law a little bit. Anyways, I like the bounty hunter identity that Jane had for a little bit, even though she she went a little dark with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but she, she was very good at it, that's for sure. And the one arm thing. I actually was kind of hoping that we'd see more of her adjusting to life with one arm. Yeah. I don't know. But I loved when she again, was, like, sort of using her legend, and, like, people would be like, how did you lose your arm? And, like, sometimes she'd tell the truth, mm-hmm. and sometimes she... And even the truth sounded ridiculous because nobody thought you could survive a shambler bite. And then sometimes she'd, like, I tried it with the devil, or, you know, just, like, playing up this... She um, played into it, yeah. Yeah. I also did like, though, how, um, you know, even though she was this really strong, courageous, badass fighter... I liked that we had a romantic interest, like Mr. Stevens was really like enamored with her. And I liked that we mm-hmm. saw her get some attention from other men because normally it's Catherine who's the one who like gets all the attention and so many people are completely infatuated with her. So it was kind of, it was nice to like, even though she d- was not into his advances at all, it, w- it was just kind of nice to see like a guy admire her and like want to be with her. And I actually respect him. Like, he handled it well. Because this also could have been, like, one of those stories where, like, the guy gets rejected and is like, mm-hmm. what? Why, how can you reject? Could have taken it really poorly or whatever. And you even right. see her when she thinks he's going to propose. And I think he was going to propose. And she's, like, ready to, like, if you do anything. <laughs> um, and he's like, no, just take the arm. Yeah, she's like, I'll take the mechanical arm. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did like that. But he was another character that I actually felt like could have been flushed out more. Like, I was kind of curious. Because yeah. it, it was sort I mean, I liked that she had a, someone interested in her, but I was sort of like, why are you interested? Like, all you know about her is she's, like, shooting people. I mean, like, she's so dark <laughs> right now, and, like, we haven't seen you guys talk enough to, like, I'm curious what his backstory is, or, like, what about her? Is it just that she was pretty, or is it, like, that he... He respected how fierce she was. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, even Carolina. Like, I wanted to learn more about Carolina. I don't know. Yeah. And his sister. Because mm-hmm. didn't they take in um, Tomas and Lily, kind of? Wasn't that yeah. them? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I really liked the characters, and I wish we had gotten to spend more time with them. I agree. But I did like how Sue got what she wanted. She was the only one who kind of got her happy ending fully, I think. But um, she did find a guy and get married and get a house, and hopefully we'll have a little brood of children. But I love how she was also sort of this, you know, another badass fighter woman, and uh, that's what she that's just what she wanted, and she found it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also loved when she called out both Catherine and Jane. That was one of my favorite scenes, actually. She was oh, like, yes. I, she also said something like, I know you guys don't ask my opinion, but that doesn't mean I don't have one or something right. like that. And I was like, go, Sue. Good point, Sue. <laughs> don't underestimate anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so my research was a little strange. I researched two things. I At first, I wanted to research Runaway Brides, just because Ooh. we get like such a brief it was like a sentence but we learned that Catherine actually escaped Fort Riley on the eve of her wedding while wearing a wedding dress I know what how did we not get more of that story that's what I'm talking about I I want to know what happened so I wanted to I wanted to research that and then I also researched animals escaping from labs because of like Gideon's lab experiments and like how the zombies kind of like escaped his lab and went rogue and you know like overtook the town so I did I did find some funny stuff about lab animals escaping um I guess the New Iberia Research Center at the University of Louisiana is one of the largest primate research centers in the country and in in 200 in 2018 they had um, 6,000 primates in captivity to breed them wow. um, for use in experiments, which is like, ooh. But they had a group of eight monkeys that were in an outdoor cage, and the monkeys discovered that a corner of the sliding door could break off. Monkeys are smart. Super smart. <laughs> and dexterous. So they grabbed the door, slid it open. Seven of the monkeys were caught pretty quickly, but one of them escaped into the nearby woods. And did not find him until the next day. Oh, man. Also in 2018, the Caribbean Primate Research Center, which imprisons 5,000 primates for experiments, two of them escaped from their cage. One was caught right away, but the other one roamed free for an entire month. Wait, where are these two? Because these aren't places where you have, like, a wild monkey. Can you imagine, like, in Chicago, someone's like, oh, I saw a monkey or something. You know, like, if you'd be like, no way. That can't be real. And then find out, like, oh, there's been a monkey loose for a month or something in in this Uh city or in this urban area or or far from the jungle. Terrifying. So then I found a site where a lot of researchers were commenting on the best way to recapture an animal who has escaped from their enclosure (laughs) in in a lab setting. And they said, I mean, it's, like, all over the place. So... Obviously, it's, like, pretty chaotic, like, not only for the keepers, but also for the animals. Um, There was one person who said, well, we had a monkey get loose this morning. It was one of our uh, bigger adult males who had a very big attitude problem. (laughs) They got some new nets that they were going to use to try and capture him after he escaped, but then they said... They finally got the male monkey to jump onto an empty cage, and then they threw a bunch of fruit into the cage. Um, and they said they tried spiking a piece of banana with ketamine, but he, he like, immediately knew something was up with this banana, and he spat it out. And so they said he sat on top of the cages and made aggressive expressions at us. <laughs> and finally they were able to 
get him back into his cage by like throwing a bunch of fruit into the cage and he ran in after it. But some of these stories are just insane. Like they say the best strategy really is um just to be very calm and to like don't scream, don't shout, don't like bring out big nets that are gonna scare the animal further. Just like calmly leave the cage open and like nine times out of ten the animal will just go back into its cage because like it, it learns to associate its big empty cage as like its safe home i could see that i mean that even happens with dogs and their crates and i mean not to that extent but exactly like, yeah. they said that like if you like a lot of people don't want to use fruit to lure it because that's like a reward and you don't want to like reward them for escaping their cages um there were some people who said that they liked to chase the animals around to like play with them until they got so exhausted that they would just kind of like crawl back into their cages and go to sleep. But a lot of people were like, you definitely shouldn't do that. That's like oh, really not good. Plus, I could just see that making like a huge mess. I know. Also, wait, I'm kind of sad that there's so many primates being experimented I know. on. Isn't that awful? Like, I want them all to escape and just like run free. Okay, let's. If we need a career change, instead of being bounty hunters, we'll be primate freers. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> um, but they said, like, uh, most of the time, like, they're not escaping because they want to leave their familiar safe home. It's because something alarmed them. And so, like, if you give them a chance to, like, calm back down, they will, like, automatically go home. Like, there was a person who had a rat escape into the ceiling. Oh, man. <laughs> and... Like, he was panicking because, like, he had, a, he had like, a rat stuck in the ceiling. And eventually he just, like, held up the rat's cage, like, to the opening. And the rat just crawled right back into the cage. Well, that actually makes me feel better then. Because then that makes it seem like they... Like, when you think about escaping, you... Or at least yeah. I apply, like, this human idea of escaping where it's like, oh, their life is terrible and they're just trying to get out. Because anything would be better than that. But I could see that, too. Like, them being startled and actually... Wanting to get back to a quote-unquote safe space. Yeah. But there were examples of animals that never were recaptured and made it out to freedom and hopefully lived wonderful lives. I love that. Wait, didn't we read a story somewhere where, like, two different camels or something, or tiger, I don't know, like, escaped from different zoos and, like, met up somewhere? Yep. There was a monkey. Remember the monkey who, like, was aggravating one of his monkey friends and then like he came back with a crowbar the next oh, yeah. <laughs> and there was um there was a seal that broke out of the pittsburgh zoo and jumped in the shark tank <laughs> oh man oh i'm sure that didn't end well you know what i miss i like <laughs> used to read stories told from the points of view of animals all the time when i was little but i can't think of a single time i've done that as an adult why don't we read more yeah. like personified animal stories as adults like Redwall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Love those books. Miss Frisbee. <laughs> Watership Down. I mean, there's some good stuff. The Have you ever seen the animated version of Watership Down? That is like one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. No, but I feel like I heard someone else talking about this the other day. And I was like, I didn't even realize there was an animated movie. But yeah, it sounds like it was extremely traumatic. It was very violent and really scary. It's definitely not for kids, that's for sure. Um... So then I did research one story of a quote-unquote runaway bride. Um, and actually, there were so many horrible ones of, like, the groom cheated, and so she left the day of. But this one was actually really kind of heartwarming. It was a woman who was preparing for her wedding, and it was on her wedding day, and her father overheard 
her repeat some things that her groom-to-be would say to her and they were terrible things and she was just like casually mentioning like oh yeah my fiance says this kind of stuff to me and so out of nowhere he suggested that they go to Dairy Queen and she was like what and he was like yeah let's just let's go get some ice cream let's go to Dairy Queen so I guess when they were little she and her dad had this tradition where they would go to Dairy Queen and they would talk over ice cream and so She was like, okay, let's go get ice cream. So he took her to get ice cream and they sat and talked over their ice cream. And eventually he was just like, I'm really concerned for you. Like I heard overheard what you were saying. And they had this like heart to heart. And she said she felt like a huge weight had been lifted. And her father told her to go home and he went to the church and told everyone the wedding was off and helped her move Mm -hmm. out of her place the next day. And she was just like, yeah, he was the best dad anyone could ask for that day. And I thought that was just like... That was sweet. That sounds like such a hard situation. And I do feel like, especially like traditionally the bride's parents or whatever pay for a wedding or, so I, especially like from that standpoint, if you're like already that close and you'd maybe feel guilty for like calling it off after all this money has been invested in time and stuff and to have like your dad be like, no, this isn't worth it. Yeah. And just like, I liked that because she was probably so caught up in the frenzy of the day and he was like, let's take a time out and go get ice cream. Like such a simple thing, but like. He knew it was, like, a space where she felt safe and where they had, you know, spent a lot of time talking. And she made the right choice, it sounds. It's so funny. I feel like sometimes when you hear about, like, an engagement getting called off, no matter how close to the wedding it was, it's sort of like, oh, that's, you know, so terrible. But then at the same time, it's like, oh, my goodness. Think I'm assuming that it's much better to get out before you're so tied together. I can't imagine, like, if I found out that James was like secretly a horrible person after I got married or something like that would be so bad he's not in case anyone's (laughs) curious (laughs) he buys a lot of cars but he's pretty good otherwise (laughs) there's there's worse vices to have I guess (laughs) he lets me buy books so we're even (laughs) it works out uh should we talk about our next book Oh yeah, let's do it. I feel so sad leaving this one, but okay. The next book that we're going to, or the next series we're going to read looks really good too. So we are going to read The Beautiful by Renee Adia. Um, We've read a few, actually just one thing, one of their book, one of their series by uh, Renee. So I'm excited to jump back into something she's written. What was the one that we read by her? We read... Flame in the Mist. Flame in the Mist, yes. Which, wasn't that the one where, like, the, like, princessy girl kind of becomes a warrior? Yeah, it was similar to Mulan. She had to, like, take revenge on, and, like, dress up like a... Like a boy. Samurai, and, yeah. Yeah, I am excited. That was a long time ago, too. I know. So long ago. Um, so we are going to read up to the chapter Champagne and Roses. Perfect. And then do you want to read a little bit about the book, if you have it? Sure. In 1872, New Orleans is a city ruled by the dead. Love it already. But does 17... 17- I know. Wait, did, weren't we just in the 1800s rule and have dead people walking? Weren't we kind of in New Orleans for a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Is this... Is this... Are we back in the town? No, please. <laughs> but to 17-year-old Celine Rousseau, New Orleans is a safe haven after she's forced to flee her life as a dressmaker in Paris. Taken in by the sisters of the Ursuline convent in the middle of the carnival season, Celine is quickly enraptured by the vibrant city, from its music to its fancy soirees and even its danger. She becomes embroiled in the city's glitzy underworld known as Le Cour de Lyons after catching the eye of the group's enigmatic leader, Sebastian St. Germain. 
When the body of one of the girls from the convent is found in Sebastian's own lair, the second dead girl to turn up in recent weeks, Celine battles her attraction to Sebastian and suspicions about his guilt, along with the shame of her own horrible secret. After a third murder, New Orleans becomes gripped by the terror of a serial killer on the loose, one who has now set Celine in his sights. As the murderer stalks her, Celine finally takes matters into her own hands, only to find herself caught in the midst of an age-old feud between the darkest creatures of the night, where the price of forbidden love is her life. At once, a sultry romance and a decadent, thrilling mystery, master storyteller Renee Adia embarks on her most potent fantasy series yet. Mm. Ooh. And there's a map of the French Quarter. This sounds so good. I'm excited. This is, uh, again, we're kind of crossing this line. I feel like this is our theme for the year of sort of mixing our fantasy elements in with sort of historic, real-world stuff. Agreed. So. Um, I've been enjoying that so far. I hope this is another good one. Me too. Because I feel like I'm going to have a big book hangover after leaving Justina Ireland's world. So this might be just what I need. And I love a mystery. And we got some romance. So it should be a a fun mix. But very different from the other series we read by her. So we'll see how it goes. And this one is just, did you already say this, a duology again? Yes. Which I love. I'm a fan of the duologies. Me too, but sometimes I just go so fast. I know. Okay, I'm trying to find a joke for you. Perfect. Make me laugh. What do you call a magician who has lost his magic? Ian? Yes! Really? Yes, Ian. I love wordplay. Very, very good. What do you call an alligator with a vest on? Uh, Ali Cadabra. No, I don't know what. An investigator. Super dumb. No, but that's kind of awesome. That's such a dad joke. What do you call a chicken looking at a bowl of lettuce? Chicken and lettuce. Chicken and... Oh, you were close. Chicken. Chicken sees a salad. (laughs) (laughs) These are fun. I love the wordplay. I tried. (laughs) All right, here's the last one. What is three letters and starts with gas? Gas? Um... G-A-S. What could it be? A car. Oh, man. (laughs) That's such a good one. I should have gotten that with my car husband. I know. (laughs) I'll have to remember that one. I think James would like that. All right. If you guys want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. And we are going to start the beautiful next time. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.